Welcome to the Versatile Writer Podcast. This is the start of Season 5, and this episode is on the theme of hyperfocus. I've talked before about becoming obsessed with something on my podcast, and even through my newsletter, and I've recently learned that hyperfocus is a much more descriptive term for the same thing. I've also touched a little on psychology and accountability, as well as staying on track. I'm one of those people who does hyperfocus really well. Some refer to it as an addictive personality. It's been suggested that I have ADHD, that's attention deficit and hyperactive disorder, and I've researched the symptoms and appear to identify and align with about 75% of them. Fortunately, this means I have a name to give to something I didn't before. Hyperfocus is one of those symptoms. I can be pretty intense when I'm hyperfocused, and when it's over, I can get pretty low. You may be able to relate to some of this. Often, I find something to focus upon which becomes all-encompassing, to the point that it goes on for months, sometimes years. It might be a type of food, a person, an actor, a book, or a movie, or something else completely. Rather than consider it negatively, it appears I've turned it into a positive writing tool. It means that I can fixate on a story, or a character, or a project, to the point that all parts of the resulting novel have been considered and worked on before it's finished. I can only do this, though, to something I'm drawn to. It would have been really useful to know about this while I was at university a couple of years ago. The attention deficit part came into play during the last year of uni in 2020. I was a mature student, or immature student, you choose. I was struggling majorly with retaining sentences. For instance, from a paragraph it was intended that I'd write a 3,000 word essay, but without being able to retain a single word, let alone a sentence or even a paragraph, I began to need extra help from my tutor. She was brilliant, thankfully. Add to that perimenopause symptoms, which are similar to that of ADHD, and even the underactive thyroid symptoms I have too. It was all pretty tough. But I got through it in the end, uphill on my hands and knees, scraping the skin off if you wanted a visual metaphor to play with. But I did it. Believe me, graduating was as much of a surprise to me as it was to everyone else. It turns out, though, I do have a brain. Anyway, back to hyperfocus. I'm a very visual person. While I can read stories and conjure up what the characters might look like or the scene might be, I do need something visual to help me retain that information. Even the front cover of the book is helpful in this respect. I've learned that writing books generally falls under two banners, entertainment or education, or sometimes both. Both carry weight. Entertainment because it's what the world does when it wants downtime, and education because with it comes a responsibility to get it right if it's intended to teach. Of course, people learn in quite different ways. Just because one person learns in a straightforward, I'll tell you this so you learn it kind of way, it doesn't mean that method works for everyone. Some people have to give the thing a try and fail a hundred times before they get it right. Others have to learn while doing it. And others learn by doing something else so the part of their brain that wants to absorb the new information can do so, but only while the other part of the brain is being occupied with maybe music or talking or visual stimulus. 
This is probably why some people revise for exams while listening to heavy metal or watching TV. For me though, it's listening to classical music. Hyperfocus can be frustrating too. There are times when, no matter how much effort you put into it, the story you're trying to write just isn't coming together quickly enough. Or the idea you had inside your head isn't quite translating onto the page as tightly as you thought it would. What plays out inside your mind in all its audio-visual glory might not be what others read because of the words you choose to convey that story. Aside from the fact that not all stories will read as they were written, that's probably down to each of us approaching things from different perspectives, having lived in different circumstances and having different influences in our lives. Hearing a reader didn't get that character as they were intended can set your soul on fire and not in a good way. You could have sweat blood getting that story complete, but if the resulting novel reads differently to the one that played out inside your imagination, it probably becomes a completely different story. But then maybe it does anyway. Maybe everyone reads your story in a different way and gets something unique from it. I recall watching Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings at the cinema many years ago and not having read the book first. I heard many cinema-goers say they didn't imagine Frodo Baggins looking anything like Elijah Wood. For me, however, it didn't matter a jot, because having not read the book first meant I needed to see how Elijah Wood made Frodo look so I could then be drawn in. The same with J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, L.M. Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables. And it wasn't until later in life I realised I was such a visual person. Since I was a teenager, I would enjoy specific TV shows or movies to the point that I needed to see the actor or actress in a different way, so I'd watch other movies they were in to get a better feel of what they could do. And with this in mind, I would then take photos from the TV and glue them into a scrapbook so I could view them when writing. By now, it's clear to you that I would use the look of an actor or an actress to help me create my own character in a story. So while I might use an actor's face or their eyes or their mouth, I would be filling in the character or their personality with my own imagination. I still do the same now and I still take photos, only instead of gluing the picture in a scrapbook, I keep them in albums on my phone. It's all research and whatever you deem research for your story is. Odd behaviour? Maybe. Helpful research? Definitely. Hyperfocus? Absolutely. I think the bottom line is that we all find our own unique way to create writing resources. When you put your heart and soul into writing a story, you need to use all you can by way of research and resources. For me, that might look like buying a research book on writing, or it might look like watching a ton of movies with the same actor so I can see them behave differently, speak with a different accent, deliver a sentence completely differently to another movie, how they engage with other characters, what clothes they might wear, what accessories they might use, what slang they might employ, and what swear words they might say, because all of these go into making a completely different character. Becoming hyper-focused brings about a significant amount of extra energy that I don't normally have, so that's a plus as well because you need loads of energy, particularly stamina, to write a novel. But a downside to that is that when the story's over, but your brain is still very much stimulated by the character, 
the plot or the story itself, then it can feel pretty horrendous because you're left with a whole bunch of feelings that have got no home to go to. The only way I can describe this is when you're in love and the other person isn't there or breaks up with you, having a whole load of feelings with nowhere to go is just the worst. This is probably why when I do finish a novel, I feel bereft for a while afterwards. The dopamine that your brain is creating is not being used up and so you feel like something you love is missing or gone or someone has died. You've spent X amount of time with characters you believe are real and now they're gone. You could have spent months or years with them. It's a terrible feeling of loss. Loss means your energy goes too and that's where depression can sometimes find a place to live. But if you have a new focus, another story idea for instance, that may well help keep the nasties at bay. Hyperfocus also shows up when you have a brilliant idea for a story that you don't want to independently publish because you feel it would do better being submitted to an agent or a publisher. This happened to me twice recently, one at the end of 2020 and then again in spring of 2021. You put your soul into the synopsis, submit it and wait. Then it feels like they take their sweet time whether to even respond to you or not, because they can, leaving you to wonder if they even received it in the first place. At this point, you step away from the idea of the novel, or if it did actually bite before the synopsis was sent and you wrote the whole thing. Step away from it, completing it, or if you've got a long way into the process, editing it. You leave it for a few months before approaching them again. Afterwards, you politely prod them, you decide to ask them outright if they got it and they respond by saying they'll look into it only to leave you a few more months later without even a reply. After a year you begin to wonder what the point of it all is and move on to your next project taking from the experience that if an agent or publisher treats you this way do you really want to work with them anyway? There's no baggage here of course none at all I'm completely fine and totally over it honest but you can see it all takes its toll and that's probably a big tick in the independent publishing box. That said, publishing works for a lot of people. Hyperfocus is rather like a relationship. If you spend all your time giving to that one person, after a while it might feel like all this giving is becoming expected. You receive a little bit back, but nothing that equals your effort. So then you decide to have time apart. And this is when the story stops working. That time apart can do one of two things. It can bring you closer together in the end or it can break the relationship completely. This is dopamine at work, you may have already realised. As I said before, dopamine is a chemical in the brain that allows us to feel pleasure, enhanced motivation, even euphoria. And according to Google, there are other search engines, this hormone contributes to your mood, your sleep, your appetite, your digestion, your learning ability and your memory. All these things that are highlighted when you fall in love. You can't sleep, you can't eat, you want to know everything about the person, that kind of thing. It also says that, that exposure to activities that increase dopamine can become addictive to some people. There ought to be a photo of me next to that definition. If you're not in touch with your emotions or your empathy as much as me, this might all sound a little bit dramatic. But if you're not afraid of engaging with them, perhaps this might make some sense to you. The most recent novel I've been working on has brought about a lot of exaggerated feelings 
a huge amount of energy and even feelings of physical hurt in my heart when it was over. The story was originally written almost a decade ago. It reached about 35,000 words and was, upon reading it again in the summer, essentially an elaborate outline. The idea struck me that as it was a really exciting story, I could dissect it, rewrite it, ask questions and answer them until it was complete. Now that six months of rewriting an original story took a lot out of me, but at the same time, the dopamine was very much at work. The hyper-focus was incredibly at work and you could actually say that I'd fallen in love with a couple of fictional characters but to me inside my head they were absolutely real. This is why I had loads of energy for the six months to complete it and I had feelings of physical hurt when the story was over. So that's what's been going on since last summer. It took a while to dissect it though because it was a fairly complex story which I wanted to simplify. I will talk about the story in length I'll do this because I want to dissect it again, layer by layer, so I understand what went into the story too. Analysis is a really good writing tool as well, especially when you're editing. I also had specific people in mind for certain characters, and I happened to watch a movie one night in the summer, and I saw an actor who I'd not even considered before, realised they fit the role perfectly of one of the characters. I actually watched them at work and knew there and then they'd be perfect. That's really rare when that happens. And the thing is, because it was a fairly complex story that needed to be simplified, having the actors face in my mind how they walked, how they dressed, how they spoke, it was really helpful for me to then complete the story. The other characters who didn't have actors' faces were found, in inverted commas, by running a Google search with specific filters like woman, long hair, mid-twenties, thirties, that kind of thing. Once I got a screen full of faces, I was able to choose one and work with them. I had two romantic stories going on and two casts of five people each and one person connecting each set. Providing I kept it all logical, it was all going to work well. Except that logic is an effort for me. But then I found I was working so hard on the story and didn't feel like I was getting anywhere with it. I knew it was a rewrite or a revision of the original story, but the novel was getting bigger and bigger and that felt overwhelming. I had nobody to talk to about it because only a select few people actually knew or understood the story and the characters, so stepping away from it was absolutely the best choice. During that time away from it, I worked on repaying a debt I had another writer friend look over my work a few years ago, beta reading it, and it was my turn to repay the debt. So reading their work, which was a completely different genre from my story, was a good thing because it forced my brain to think differently. And after that was complete, I went back to the story with a fresher mind. I'd begun sticking together and fleshing out all the dissected pieces, raising questions, answering them, and developing the characters when I noticed there was a mirror image or some echoing going on with the two sets of characters. This was interesting and something I took away as a positive byproduct of my creation of certain character traits. The mirror image wasn't exact. In one cast of characters, there was a woman whose behaviour was awful, really rude and treated people badly. And in the other cast, it was a young man who was a sociopath and whose character traits were very similar. It was interesting once I'd gone back to analyse it. With heaps of repetition, poor original writing that only touched the surface of a larger story, and lots of new writing, 
The story soon reached 105,000 words. Most romantic stories are between 80 and 90,000. But then this probably wasn't going to be traditionally published, so technically I could make it as big or as small as I wanted. I quite like this kind of story though, to finish around the 90,000 word mark, as that's a really good size for a novel to sit in your hands. But most of the word count will be picked up in the edits, so I won't worry about the length just yet. Right now, it's been revised, the characters have been developed, I've asked and answered questions, and I've finished it. I've pretty much just emptied my brain. The final rundown to the end of the novel was tricky, and I recognised that I would feel horrible when it was done, so I left it a few days without touching it, prolonging its completion. However, thinking about it, all that does is turn it into a massive bout of procrastination because you're trying to protect yourself from feeling those sad feelings. The characters are going to be finished. I won't see them anymore. I won't spend time with them anymore. I won't chat with them anymore. But my want to complete this work in progress was bigger than my worry of sadness. So I donned my big girl pants and I just got to it. The thing is, I'm not getting any younger, so leaving this earth without finishing those works in progress of old was inconceivable. I had to finish them. And that was when I employed the help of a fellow writer who I asked to hold me accountable on the final rundown of revising it. I imposed a deadline of six weeks to complete it, readying it for beta readers in the new year. What I actually did was use up two weeks to complete it and left myself just under a month for editing. Providing I kept to my schedule, it was absolutely achievable, probably because I was hyper-focusing on it. Holding myself accountable is one thing, but having another writer to do it to and being let into the world of the story meant I couldn't allow myself to fall by the wayside. After all, you're talking to an overachiever here. If I didn't do it, the humiliation would be beyond words. This is self-sabotage in reverse. I put myself into a vulnerable state deliberately. We writers can be so wicked to ourselves, yet in the end, you have another book in your hands, no matter what it took to get there. I'll talk about accountability in another podcast because it deserves its own space, but I want to give a big shout out to Sarah Dodd, author of Keeper of Secrets, for holding me accountable in such a sweet way. You can find her on Twitter, at Sarah J. Dodd. So, bearing in mind what our brains put us through when we're writing, how do writers continue writing more novels while putting themselves through the process time and time again? To be fair, I'm sure it's a process that not every single writer goes through. Why would we do this to ourselves if it was? But those of us who actually live with hyper-focus and have to use our skills for, but often against ourselves, we have to do this. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. My thoughts are that when you write a novel and feel all those things, the obvious next step, once the book has gone through the process of getting in front of readers, is to begin the process again. That way you've got somewhere else to channel those feelings. Fortunately or unfortunately, I find I'm still besotted with one or two of the characters. This might be problematic because it means I may well write and edit them with a biased tone. On the other hand, If the reader sees any of that, maybe it's a good thing. They are meant to like the good guys and hate the baddies after all. The bottom line is I can't help how I feel about a character. I just have to ride out the feelings until the feelings are gone or at least diminished due to lack of stamina. 
That's psychology for you. The psychology of a writer. That sounds like another podcast episode to me. (laughs) I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of my podcasts. We talk about the downsides of mental health quite a bit in the writing community. But I think it's also useful to find out what mental health aspects you live with daily, but actually help you write and help you achieve your writing goals. Until next time, thanks for joining me on The Versatile Writer. Take care. See you next time.